Defense of Plants is made possible by all of our wonderful patrons that support the podcast each and every month over at patreon.com slash plants. Their monthly contributions ensure that Indefensive Plants can continue to bring you amazing botanical and ecological conversations each and every week. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to help make free science communication possible, consider becoming a patron. By supporting the show, you will receive wonderful kickbacks like stickers, producer credits, and access to multiple mini bonus episodes each month. Consider becoming a patron today and help spread the love of plants around the globe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Up until very recently, I never considered horticultural taxonomy to be a thing. It makes a lot of sense, though. There's a lot of cultivars, varieties, selections out there of various plants, not to mention all of the hybridization that goes on within the horticultural world. And someone or some group has to keep track of all of that, especially when it comes to registered and recognized selections or whatever it is you want to talk about. And that is exactly what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to dive into the world of horticultural taxonomy and learn about its importance and what it can mean for our society moving forward. This isn't just about aesthetics and beauty. I want to emphasize that. Joining us to talk about this is Matthew Reese. He is a botanist for the Royal Horticultural Society, and he works with the horticultural taxonomy team. This is really interesting work, and for me at least, an avenue of botany that I am really unfamiliar with, and I'm really excited for you to hear all about it. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Matthew Reese. I hope you enjoy. All right, Matthew Reese, it's great to have you on the podcast. It's an honor to have you here. But before we begin, let's start off by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Yeah, hi, Matt. Uh, hi, everybody. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Of I've course. been listening for quite a few years now. I'm a huge fan. Oh, so thanks. Kudos to you for setting this up and keeping it going for so long. Yeah, so my name is Matthew Reese. I'm a botanist and I work for the Royal Horticultural Society, um, which is the RHS for short. And we are the uh, largest UK charity dedicated to gardening. We have about five and a half million members oh. uh, across the country. So wow. yeah, that's that's quite a big number. And so I work in the horticultural taxonomy team uh, in the broader science department. And I have a split role between plant identifications and research on ecosystem services of cultivated plants. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you about your work today. But before we jump into the meat of it, what got you interested in plants? Is this something you've always had in your life? Or did you kind of come to it later on through some sort of uh, gardening experience or educational career kind of thing? Yeah, it was, uh, I've, I've always loved being outside and spending my time just in nature. When I was a kid, we used to spend a lot of time in my grand's like area. There's a really nice forest, which is actually um, a site of special scientific interests. Mm. I've only learned that recently, but <laughs> going back there now makes a lot of sense. Sure. Um, just spending a lot of time in the forest was was amazing. I'm not really gifted in terms of <laughs> academia, so I actually dropped out of school quite early on um, when I was 17 before finishing my baccalaureate. But at this point, maybe I should uh, specify that I'm not actually native uh, English. I've I spent most of my life in France. Okay. My parents are English, but I've been brought up and grown in, in France for about 25 years or so. Right on. But yeah, as I said, so I, I kind of dropped out of school early, um, wasn't really sure of what I was going to do with my life. 
and ended up traveling to, to Costa Rica, actually, where I spent a few months. And that's where I, I volunteered for a botanic garden. Awesome. You might have actually been there. I know you've been to Costa Rica before, but um, it's called Lancaster Botanic Gardens. Oh, yeah. Which is, uh, yeah. So it's located just below the, the capital of Cartago. And they specialize in orchids. So, <laughs> yeah, amazing experience yeah. spending like three and a half months there volunteering for this garden and just taking it all in. It was, you know, Costa Rica is an amazing country. They have such amazing biodiversity. So that's what kind of kicked me into it. <laughs> um, eventually, I made my way back to France, started studying again into, into horticulture and um yeah, managed to work for some botanic gardens. So the botanic garden of uh, Nancy and then Lyon. And then through those gardens, I made some connections, was able to do a, a field trip uh, in South America, looking at passion flowers Ooh. and uh, aroids. Nice. So that was with um, Tom Crote from Missouri Botanic oh, Garden. Oh, nice. David Cherberich from Lyon Botanic Garden and Geneviève Ferry. So they, um, in France, those two botanic gardens have a very close connection with the Aroid world and they have the national collection of Aroids. Whoa. So that was, yeah, great introduction to like neotropical biodiversity and, and botany. That was amazing. Huh. Eventually I, I made my way back to the UK where my parents are from and I studied at Kew for, for three years. And then, you know, I was getting more and more interested in the science and I did a master's at uh, the Royal Botanic Garden, Edinburgh, and then finally got this job. Wow. What an excellent trajectory. And it's cool that, you know, you can be honest about this sort of stuff. Not everyone goes the same route. There's no single recipe towards success. And really, it just sounds like you found your passion and you've just pursued it ever since. And there's no predicting where that's going to take you. But you've obviously found what you love and, and a really fruitful uh, pathway through it, regardless of, you know, where you started. Uh, it's so great to see someone that's been able to just put it together. And, you know, again, reminding people there's no single pathway to success in this field. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, plants were a real life changer. And the beauty of it is that I think anybody can can do the same thing. Anybody, if you're if you're interested, people in the plant world are so generous with their time, with their knowledge, and you can just have these amazing opportunities. You know, traveling to the tropics is never something that I would have thought of <laughs> growing up. And it was like, wow, you know, you're finally setting foot in the Amazon jungle and that was just crazy. Yeah. And what's neat, too, is it kind of seems like most of what your experiences have been have been centered around this idea of horticulture. And what's great about the horticultural field is it does expose you to the wild diversity of plants. I mean, you're never going to see all of the plants. That's absurd. But you get an interesting selection from all over the world, and it can take you to places to actually see, you know, it's one thing to see these plants growing in a, a botanical garden in a greenhouse under glass. But then when you finally get to see them in the wild, you get a broader appreciation for everything. But through that that lens of the first exposure being growing plants oftentimes ex situ far away from where they've originated oh yeah absolutely i mean gardens in the uk are quite diverse collections and botanic gardens worldwide have this amazing uh, opportunity to grow stuff from all around the world and yeah you're just able to see this diversity of plants learn all of these different families how plants are related to each other I've always been really interested in learning like how plants have evolved, how they relate to each other and, and what are the, the criteria to be able to identify them. You know, if somebody says, oh, this plant is in this family or that family, you're like, but why? Why? <laughs> how? Right. Yeah. 
I like that too, because, you know, it's one thing to see these things in the wild and see them in context, but oftentimes, you know, even beyond herbariums, which I'm not going to discredit, herbariums are super important and vital tools to understanding biodiversity and protecting it. And, but to see living plants in a botanical garden, you often get to see these sometimes closely, but oftentimes not so closely related species within, you know, an arm's reach. And to be able to see that kind of diversity spread out in front of you gives you those sorts of insights into like, oh, here's some shared structures. Here's how they're different. What about their lifestyles might make them different? I like the question generating and, and sort of the the realization moments you can have in ex situ collections like that. Mm. Yeah, you just... There's, there's so many things that you, you can do with them. So you mentioned herbaria as well, but like when I was working at Kew, having this interface between the horticultural side and, and the scientists and growing these these plants that are used for research was really something that hit home for me. It was like, wow, this is actually, yeah, this is the base of doing science with a living organism. And I think that's what kind of propelled me to, to do what I'm doing today. So we use for our experiments, uh, field research facilities where we can grow plants, cultivate them, and manipulate them in a in an, a human-based environment, basically. Yeah, and you can't underemphasize that role of, of being able to have these things freely available because, yeah, I mean, some of this stuff would be so difficult to do in the field even if you had the means of getting there. But, you know, this brings up a bigger a question or idea of like, what does it mean to be in the Royal Horticultural Society and what is the goals of this organization? You know, I, I hear RHS, especially if you're not in the UK yeah. experiencing it, you know, you can kind of just think of like a nice cottage garden and, and kind of promoting this idea of like, oh, look at all the pretty flowers and stuff like that. But it's so much more than that. There's so much going on with the RHS. And, you know, even what you're doing is just a small fraction of that. So kind of give us an introduction, at least from your angle of to what RHS is all about and what you know, you are doing in the context of the RHS. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as I said, it's a UK based charity. So most of the focus is around UK gardens and UK plants, but obviously we have uh, a broad range of expertise across the horticultural industry and the taxonomic world. We've got over a thousand staff working for us. And I don't actually know the number of uh, <laughs> volunteers that we have, but you know, I think the official figure is half a gazillion or something. <laughs> uh, we have so many volunteers for us and, and we rely on them for a number of things, not just for our work or our events that we organize, but also for, for their expertise. So I'm just one person working, you know, as a botanist. And although I'm quite a, you know, I'm, I'm a generalist, so I like to look at all sorts of different things. My knowledge doesn't go very far necessarily in all the groups. So we'll often call upon these volunteers to help us in whether it's plant trials or plant identifications, local experts that um, they're not necessarily, um, I don't like to use this word, you, you have like professionals and amateurs and it, it kind of has like this weird connotation that amateurs are like just, you know, people going rogue a little bit on their own, <laughs> but actually that's not the case at all. You know, these, these people hold so much knowledge uh, that we can use and, and it's really important for us to be able to, you know, be supported by these these local experts. We have five gardens across the UK. So that's uh, Wisley, Harlow Carr, Hyde Hall, Rosemore and Bridgewater, our newest garden. And I work in the first historical garden in the Wisley estate, mm. uh, which was acquired around the 1900s. Mm. It was donated by a, a wealthy Quaker. But the society as a whole goes back to uh, 1804. 
and it was um, brought together by a group who had strong connections with the horticultural industry, with the royalty, and so together they they founded this uh, this society with the focus on experimentation and publishing in the horticultural world. So from the very beginning, the society has had this this focus on on research and um, and publication of novel methods and also new plants introduced into cultivation. Hmm. Yeah, so we acquired the the Wisley Estate in the early 1900s, and then the laboratory, which is this beautiful building, um, was built in the like 1916, and that's where we have our herbarium and our first classes for dispensing horticultural classes to um, to students. So I I work in the science department, which is um, quite a broad department with uh, the focus on uh, horticultural taxonomy on plant health, which includes pathology and entomology. We have a department on horticultural information. So that's our horticultural databases, our collections. And then finally, a department on uh, environmental horticulture. So that's focusing on ecosystem services of plants. So as I said, I, I kind of work between as a bridge between two departments, the hort taxonomy and the environmental horticulture. We have some really nice collections, not only the, the herbarium, which has about 90,000 specimens. Wow. So it's it's one of the largest herbarium in the world that's dedicated fully to cultivated plants. Huh. I'll, I'll come back to this in a minute. Sure. But there's, um, yeah, the, the notion of having uh, species versus cultivars. This is our specialty that we focus on and we mm. kind of bridge the species boundaries. In my department, in horticultural taxonomy, we focus so on plant identification. So myself and three other people, we do nomenclature. So that's following the rules of botanical nomenclature and more specifically for cultivated plants. Wow. Uh, that has its own set of rules and regulations <laughs> that are sometimes a bit obscure and finicky, but <laughs> you know have a, a very broad implication for the uh, the industry as a whole. Um, particularly for legislation, you know, concerning plant breeders' rights, patents, etc. Hmm. We have a focus on uh, registration for cultivars. So the RHS is the International uh, Cultivar Registration Authority for nine groups, including uh, that's rhododendrons, dahlias, lilies, clematis, conifers. That's a big group as a whole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Daffodils, delphiniums, dianthus, and orchids. What wow. orchids? Yeah. So basically, um, uh, an international cultivar registration authority or ICRA is a group which kind of governs the introduction of new cultivated names. So as I was saying, the nomenclature of cultivated plants is slightly different, but based upon the International Code of Botanical Nomenclature. And we just make sure that the plant names follow, you know, the rules so nine ikras, and then we have our herbarium with, as I said, about 90,000 specimens. And then we have um, a focus also on molecular identification of cultivars with a particular focus on bulbs. So you can huh. imagine that if you have certain daffodils or other bulbs that come in through the, um, the market and they're not in growth, you don't necessarily <laughs> know which ones they are. They're just bulbs, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, so yeah, using molecular techniques such as DNA fingerprinting to kind of identify oh, wow. which cultivars uh, are which just using molecular markers. Huh. And yeah, we produce a number of publications. So probably the, the most frequent and the most important, uh, we have the, the plant finder, which is basically a snapshot 
of all of the plants that are available in the UK in a given year. Um, so this year, for example, we had 80,000 uh, names included in this volume. So that's wow. 80,000 different plants that are available. And on average, we get about 4,000 new names per year. So some dropouts, some new ones come in. Uh, we have the Hillier's Trees and Shrubs manual. We have our horticultural monographs. So on wisteria, headers, uh, sweet peas, and colchicum. Yeah, and that's what that's what my department does. All the <laughs> wonderful things. That's a lot of. <laughs> that's it, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. And you know, I don't think we have the similar culture. I mean, people like gardening here in North America, but I, I think it's a very different cultural and a very different historical background to this. But it's really cool to kind of hear about some of these unseen, oftentimes that are unknown, sort of what's going on behind the scenes with the horticultural industry, especially when it comes to, you know, maintaining, just understanding what's out there, let alone cataloging and understanding and fingerprinting. I mean, that is such a cool brushstroke to hear about all of the scientific work that goes behind, you know, what eventually ends up in your garden or in the nursery, at least you could pick and choose from. But I mean, it sounds like your department has its work cut out for. <laughs> yeah, we have, we have a lot of things going on and, you know, we're just growing and growing as I said, we have quite a, a lot of staff. I think in the science department as a whole, we have over 100 people working. Wow. And for for myself, just plant identifications, uh, we've recruited two people in the last year to help with with the ident load. Wow. So, for example, on a on a yearly basis, I would do our team would take care of about 5,000 inquiries, um, <laughs> and that's actually one of the the smallest uh, numbers compared to other departments. So, huh. for example, in plant health, uh, they have to deal with identification of pests and diseases. Dang. They get a huge load of inquiries. And in the uh, horticultural information, just general gardening questions, I'm not actually sure of, of the numbers, but, you know, they're, they're, they're far bigger than ours. Infinite. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, that's wild. And so this brings up this idea of what you do as a horticultural taxonomist. And taxonomy, mm -hmm. even just with straight species, from purely going out into the the world of evolved plants, living in nature, that is a challenge. It's messy. It's confusing. And oftentimes, biology being what it is, a lot of plants can look wildly different from their relatives. And it can be a real head scratcher until you really sit down. But in the horticultural realm, when the human involvement gets in there and you start messing with things and breeding and, and creating new cultivars all the time. I mean, I'm just mm -hmm. flabbergasted by the amount of new things that come out year after year after year and get trialed, let alone enter into the hobby in a big way. That's got to add such a big layer of complexity to the process of what it means to be a horticultural taxonomist, because some of this stuff has been bred to look absolutely nothing like what its progenitor was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, some things are just almost unrecognizable as belonging to a certain genus anymore. You know, they're just wow. so highly bred. But yeah, horticultural taxonomy is is um, I like I like to start off with like the the species concept. That's kind of our you know <laughs> yeah. biological unit for uh, understanding the processes that happen across the earth, really. But but that unit doesn't really stand true in the horticultural world because there's so many uh, hybrids between different species, uh, back crosses. Sometimes you have, you know, plants that are the produce of 10 or maybe 15 different genotypes of different species. So it, it becomes useless to kind of attribute a species name to it, right? Yeah. So we just define it by its genus and then we define it by its cultivar name. Okay. 
Yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of like the system of Russian dolls where you have like the family, the genus, the species, and then the individual. And, you know, coming from like a, a botanical perspective, reading what the definition of a species is, is still a little bit messy. And I think the, um, the paper by the Kiros uh, in 27, uh, I think, really gives like a good explanation of why there's been so many issues about defining species. And that's simply because we use different tools to measure what a species is, mm. but it's basically like a meta evolving population. And so my, yeah, my basic unit has become the population. And then within that you have the individual within the population. And that's really what horticulturists are interested in. It's that one individual that shows that one mutation, which makes it unique. Wow. You know, whether it be a different flower color, different heights you know all sorts of traits sure and yeah i like this sort of organization at the population level because that's really what breeders are doing is creating a population that have the shared desirable characteristic whatever that might be and what's also probably amazing about your job is to kind of take a step back for a second and look at like what is driving this i mean is it petal color is it shape is it, you know, something about the leaves? I mean, it's it's probably different within each group, but also when you look mm -hmm. across groups, wildly different as to what's going on and, and what people are working with. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And one thing I'm becoming more and more interested in is how we're able to capture that information. So that's where our herbarium comes in as a really important resource is that through digitization, we're able to, you know, display all of this variety uh, for people to use and then we're also actively collecting throughout the gardens getting new material in from newly introduced cultivars and measuring their you know their color their overall hardiness for example uh, spread all sorts of things depending on which group they belong to wow yeah i can't emphasize enough how much you have your work cut out for you and your team of course with that in mind but all of this comes down to good record keeping right i mean you have to have some sort of semblance of where did this come from what are its progenitors i mean what genus is it involved in and then who's mm -hmm. developing it but there also with that has to come a set of rules that you hinted at right and so yeah. you know without going too far into the weeds i mean you can't just say like, oh, look at this weird mutant. I want to make a new variety, right? You can't just like name it and then throw it in there. And you're like, guess what? You have to deal with it now. I, I made it. <laughs> <laughs> well, to some extent, that does actually happen. Some oh, people good. just, yeah, they, they don't really keep track of, of anything and they just produce new names all the time. So there's really two extremes of, of this where you have, for example, in orchids, uh, people are extremely good at keeping a track record of mm. every single uh, individual that they produce. So the whole genealogical history of, of that individual can be backtracked to its original parents. Wow. Whereas in other groups, um, you know, primulas, for example, yeah, people don't really keep very good track of it, for example, and we'll have a display of new names come up every year, but there's no description that goes with it. There's no nothing. So we, we encourage people if they're submitting a new name for a new variety to first of all, look if the plants corresponds to something that's distinct, uniform and stable. So that's DUS. Mm. And those are the kind of the criteria that people use in the plant breeders rights domain to establish if something, yeah, will, will stand the, the time frame where it's up in the market or will it just completely mutate into something else? Because otherwise, it's useless to give it a name if you're not actually going to obtain what it is that it says on the label, right? Yeah. Yeah. So 
I think there's there's loads of groups which are which are really interesting, and we receive so many different names each year. So, you know, rhododendrons are one of them. We have like uh, I think there's over thirty thousand names that have been published in rhododendron. Daffodils are the same, and you really have to kind of do this detective work of are these you know thirty thousand names are they actually different plants or are there probably some synonyms in there? So. Mm. Yeah, you have to make sure that you go back to the original material that was collected and see if how how does it differ from you know X or Y other cultivar that's in the same group. Um, so there is a lot of synonymy that's produced, but yeah. again, each individual is different, and you know there are sport mutations that can happen in all sorts of different groups, creating novel diversity, which is which is what we're interested in. Sometimes people kind of they get afraid of that like i so through the idents uh, inquiries that i receive some people will show me pictures of something where they bought it under a certain name but the the flower has obviously mutated or like it's gone variegated foliage or something and they're really unhappy with it <laughs> because it's not what they were thinking they were going to buy sure but at the same time that's also how we discover new cultivars uh, these mutations that appear spontaneously and you know, that's what brings diversity to life, really. Yeah. And I would imagine, especially when you get into the realm of hybridizing, things can go wacky really quick. Or if a virus enters into the picture, even unknowingly to the person, it doubles a flower or creates variegation or something like that. You can really see stuff happen literally overnight in the plant world. And that's one thing about, you know, plants are already doing that in the wild. But when we start to mess with things and start to tweak and and select and breed and, and bring species together, even just I can imagine the amount of sports that happen just because a bee went to two different flowers. If you're growing azaleas or rhododendrons close to each other, nature sometimes is doing it for you. You've just facilitated it by getting them close to one another. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, there's there's like some groups that are... Um... You know they'll they'll self-pollinate so even though sexual reproduction tends to introduce uh, novel mutations into the system if you're you know completely homozygous for one allele then you can reproduce again and again by self-fertilization and you will still obtain the same variety whereas you know as you said if you have a little bit of cross-pollination going on then who knows what you can obtain yeah hmm. And so do you have to be, I don't know where this decision gets made, but I would guess your department has a lot to do with that, with the back checking using herbarium specimens. There has to be sort of a, a line in the sand, so to speak, of where you're going to make something official versus lump it in with something else or synonymy or just like, no, nah, that's not distinct or stable enough. You know, I remember seeing a, a Gardener's World episode where they were talking to a snowdrop expert and he was trying to explain all the differences between, you know, I'm a botany minded person. I don't think a few millimeters of green striping on the petals to me is all that different, but to him it made a big difference in a collection. Yeah. Uh, or you get into the, some of these aeroid groups and you're like, this one is green with yellow dots and this is green with slightly cream colored variegation. You're like, I don't think that's different, but, you know, <laughs> so as a professional in this world, as someone that has to do this stuff, uh, from a scientific perspective, I mean, are there lines in the sand you have to draw? Yeah, that's that's a good one. I mean, I th I think like I'm on the same line as you on that one. Like, <laughs> I see I see variation, you know, and and sometimes that's all I see. Whether something has a different spot here or or two marginal lines here, I I just see that as variation. But uh, particularly in the horticultural world, people attach to them, and you know, if if people are ready to to buy what you have to sell if they if, if it makes them feel good then that 
that single mutation can be propagated and so that you know it is it is worth something to, to somebody mm. and so this is where we rely on you know specialists in each group to be able to help us in defining that line in the sand between what constitutes variability as opposed to what constitutes a specific variable type and yeah it's it's very personal like it's very uh the boundaries are fluid depending on who you are what group you're interested in some people have a a tendency to lump things together some people hmm. tend to split things and oh yes <laughs> yeah you know in in the in the horticultural world people tend to be splitters hmm. quite a bit so i guess yeah. there's some motivation there in terms of getting your name on something or being able to you know make something economically viable you know kind of motivating. yeah definitely there's there's definitely a, a strong economic incentive to being able to produce novelty um you know something that's new will help you sell your product on the market better so there's there is a an economic incentive to to doing it, but you know as I said, there's also just people appreciate seeing little differences yeah. uh, with snowdrops, galanthophiles. You know, <laughs> if it's the first thing that you have in the beginning of the year and it makes you so happy, right? Then yeah, sure, go for it. Yeah, totally. And I wouldn't pay nine thousand dollars for a single <laughs> bowl, but yeah, you know, <laughs> if you want to, that's your money, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what's exciting too is it, you know, it's kind of emphasizing this idea that RHS is not necessarily the authority. I mean, you're helping make this stuff possible. You're you're, you're sort of a cataloging, categorizing um, network of people. But I could imagine someone, especially in your position there, you get to meet a wide swath of people that are interested in a wide variety of plants for a wide variety of different reasons. I bet you meet some characters, some really interesting specialists, and a, all manner of perspectives and reasons for gardening. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think... I think you're right. A lot, a, lot, a lot of people might look up to us and think we're some sort of authority. And, you know, especially when plant names get changed, they'll, <laughs> you know, think, well, why has the RHS done this? And it's important to say that we're, we're not necessarily the authority, but we're, we're using a broad spectrum of publications. We have our own taxonomic group that supervises like the decisions made to, to change a name or not in the industry. It's important to say that even though a name changes, nobody's forcing you to use that name <laughs> if, if you don't want. Like, for example, people got very upset with the merge of rosemary within salvia. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can still call it a rosemary. Everybody knows what you're talking about. The same goes for Hebe. Everybody knows what a Hebe is, but we have now taken the decision to merge it within the broader genus Veronica. So that's also somewhere where common names come in very handy. Yeah. I'm not necessarily uh, a fan of common names because, <laughs> you know, they're very regional. They depend on which language you're speaking. A common name in the UK is not the same as one in France. And that's why we use Latin names. But, you know, in some circumstances, they can come in handy. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's a, I mean, even within straight species out in the wild, what you want to call it in your spare time or even, you know, to your, your your gardening or native plant group, that's fine. It's it's more about the standardization of the record keeping that's important mm -hmm. because you want to have those records because especially in the horticultural realm, things can get really confusing really quickly. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And yeah, meeting meeting these these experts, they have like such interesting stories to tell about each plant. A lot of them have traveled quite far and seen these plants in the nature, in the natural habitat. So yeah. getting their point of view on how the plant is best cultivated or just general stories of where it was collected is just so fascinating. 
Yeah, I bet. Oh man, just the history side of it, let alone the the more biological aspects. Mm-hmm. But you know, you mentioned this idea of like diversity and variety. And when you think about plant breeding, or at least I have traditionally, you think a lot of like mixing related individuals with traits that you want. And I generally don't think of it as variety, but then you go to a nursery and you're like, oh yeah, there is a variety. It may be aesthetically variable, but you know, and then you enter into this picture of hybridization and just how crazy that could be. And so when you think about how much a lot of these species do differ from their wild counterparts, I mean, what is that aspect like with your job, especially as a botanist that has to be familiar, or at least try to familiarize yourself with, um, you know, the diversity of forms and then again, how much humans can tweak and, and mess with that? <laughs> yeah, um, I think this is where my my sec- the second part of my job comes into play where um, I study so ecosystem services of cultivated plants and um, we're interested in kind of targeting those groups of plants that show a lot of variability even within the same genus so whether you're crossing species or not uh, or whether you're using just different populations of one species you can obtain very very different forms and you know with conifers for example the classic example is probably dwarf conifers so mm. a species that would normally reach you know 40 meters tall in the wild then becomes this dwarf little thing that grows up to 50 centimeters. And it, you know, it's still the same species. It's just that that particular genotype is completely dwarfed. And so those different genotypes have, you know, a broad range of variation in their traits that will then influence the services that they provide. So I'm particularly interested in looking at how hedges can mitigate storm water, yeah. uh, particularly in, in urban environments. So there's a lot of work being done on trees and how trees provide ecosystem services, but there's not much work being done on hedges, for example. And with the nature of my work during the summertime, I'm really busy with lots of idents, but in the wintertime, um, I have a lot less. So I kind of focus a lot of my research during the wintertime, which is also a gap in the literature where hardly anybody has looked at the effects of vegetation in an urban setting during the wintertime. And particularly with water, at least in the UK, we receive the vast majority of our rainfall during the winter time. Yeah, and so yeah, it just makes sense to kind of see how we can mitigate all this excess stormwater, particularly where you have areas that are becoming increasingly paved over. We're losing more and more permeable surface in our cities, so all this excess water kind of gushes towards our systems, our our pipeline. You know, I live south of London and. <laughs> the whole the whole network dates back to the to the 18th century so oh. it's just not built to cope with the vast amounts of water that are just gushing through it yeah. so a lot of water gets eventually flooded into the Thames river for example and then that has you know impact on all sorts of things downstream yeah and it's important to find these gaps and really think about why a they're gaps and and what is lacking in terms of people's interest in studying this stuff, but also what they can do for us in this system that we've created over time. And especially in a place like the UK, where you have such a vast history of development that wasn't ever having the foresight of, you know, 2021 and populations (laughs) and modernization and all the fun things that come with that, you know, and I'm a, I'm a big native plant nut, but I'm by no means a purist. I enjoy the diversity of plants. And it's really important to think about, you know, ideals of purism aside 
how different plants can function in that landscape. And yeah, it's it's really important to have these ecologically sound gardens where you're feeding pollinators and, and all of these mm-hmm. great beneficial insects, the native biodiversity. But you do have to deal with the fact that, A, people are going to want spice in their life, a diversity of plants from different you know cultivars all the way up to you know strange things that would never have made it to this continent. But how can those be integrated into the system in a way that's beneficial for us? And I really like this idea that we're seeing more of the environmental side coming into the horticultural realm because you know a lot of people will put their foot down and go like no they've only introduced like viewing horticulture as purely just a source of invasive species mm-hmm. yeah it has been but it's also it needs it's evolving as as a practice and and as you know a science too it, it has to and it is by the sounds of it yeah absolutely i mean you you are right to point out that you know horticulture has been the major source of introduction of a lot of you know invasive non-native species but they do represent a significantly small proportion of the diversity that has been introduced. You know, in the UK, we don't have that many species. We have about 1,500 species that are either native or naturalized. Hmm. So that's, you know, in winter times, you can get a bit bleak. (laughs) (laughs) But with the urban environment and especially the heat island effect, you can cultivate things that, you know, would be evergreen or would be in flower throughout winter times and that does have a strong impact, uh, not just on local biodiversity, but also on people. I think this one of the strengths of using an ecosystem services approach is that it gives you a novel set of uh, tools to talk to people who are not necessarily interested in plants or biodiversity. You know, I, if I say to people that I work with plants, you know, if I talk to a bank or, I don't know, something cliche of somebody who doesn't necessarily care about the environment mm-hmm. targeting bankers here but i probably shouldn't because there's loads of bankers that are really biodiverse friendly but um you get my point right they yeah. will just look at you and be like all right hippie what else <laughs> do you have to say you know plant hugger whatever yeah, yeah. but if you say to them well listen man you know in london we have about eight and a half million trees it's one of the greenest capitals in europe and on an economic basis they produce billions of pounds worth of money saving for services that you don't even realize. So this is like air pollution filtration. This is stormwater mitigation. This is uh, increasingly looking at people's well-being. And, you know, it might not mean much to you, but for somebody who has an increased benefit because of the park that's nearby, they'll feel better. They will be less prone to disease and uh, suffering. They will go less to the doctors. They'll have less medication. All this has an an economic cost. So you don't realize it, but it's just little things adding on, adding on, adding on. And at the end, yeah, you're like, oh, wow, there's so much benefits to having all this biodiversity near you. And from an economic perspective as well, that gives you a lot of weight to talk to people that don't necessarily speak the language of, of plants. They're like, okay, we have a budget to give out for the city. And, you know, people are applying for budgets to build roads, build schools, build hospitals. And you're there. No, we have to build a park or maintain <laughs> the park. It's like, well, why should we give all this money to you? And if you can come to the table with this set of tools and this type of language, then people actually start listening to you because, you know, that gives weight to, to your arguments. 
Totally. And it's nice to hear that perspective from the scientific side of it, because, you know, I'll post an article about, wow, scientists have finally found a way to quantify the actual heat island mitigating effects of planting a tree. And you get all these people who are, you know, generally environmentally minded going like, duh, we already knew that happens. Well, yeah, you do. (laughs) But in terms of what speaks to others, you got to realize communication and getting people on board is not about you need to think about this the way exact same way I think about it. It's what language speaks best to you and what's going to convince you. And sometimes you need that quantification. And to be able to do that, to be able to bring those to community meetings or planning events to say like, okay, you may not care about, say, carbon sequestration, but here's X amount of dollars you're going to save on just the power grid by planting Mm -hmm. a bunch of trees. And here's a way we can save X amount of dollar of sewer damage every year. I think more so in the bigger context of what capitalism is and the societies we live in speaks volumes. So it's really nice to hear that angle being pitched. Uh, You know, this seems so tangential to what you would do as a horticultural taxonomist, but it is a big part of the motivation. And, And again, thinking about new ways you can apply these ideas is exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, seeing it from like preaching to the choir is good, but preaching to people who are you know, really not interested in what you have to say and, and having them listen to you is really something different as an experience. It's, uh, it's really transforming. And so, yeah, with, with hedges, for example, we know that the vast majority of storm water that kind of overflows into urban areas gets absorbed by soil. So it's basically how can we increase the soil surface in our cities, but also find the right balance with with managing that area. There's a lot of new technologies that are emerging for like uh, water absorbing soils. Um, I'll have to forward you a link to a video, but there was like this prototype of surface where they basically bring in a, a whole lorry full of water and just dump the whole lorry, you know, we're talking uh, thousands of liters onto this surface and it just completely absorbs it, wow. no overflow whatsoever. And you think, wow, that's amazing. But the thing is, those uh, types of technologies easily get clogged up with dust, with particles. And, you know, within a couple of years, you might not have such an efficient surface. Mm. Whereas if you have plant-based solutions, because your soil is a lot more organic and you have constant movements of bacteria, of animals in the soils, it is always creating this micro porosity inside it. And so you have a regeneration of the system by itself. So you increase the total surface area and then choosing the right hedge species that will be able to absorb the water and regenerate its potential to kind of absorb novel rainflow is what we're looking into. Wow. Yeah. So let's dive into that a little bit more. I mean, you as a horticultural taxonomist and scientist, you know, how are you taking what you know about horticulture and taxonomy (laughs) and botany and trying to apply it to that sort of realm of thinking? Because I would imagine, you know, of course, when you started this... (laughs) That, some, that would probably seem like a very foreign idea or something so abstract that it's hard to get your head wrapped around. So where do you start to begin to ask or think about these types of questions in a way that's meaningful and you can kind of start using experimentation and the scientific process to start to tease that apart and understand what works and what doesn't? Yeah, so the first part of uh, our work is really kind of locating which groups might be targets uh, for us to investigate. So you know, you can start off very broadly. Let's say you you choose lots of different genera from either evergreens or deciduous, and then you gradually narrow it down to like certain species, for example, that have lots of cultivars in them. So one group I'm looking at particularly is uh, thuyas. 
Nice. Um, so these are like uh, evergreen conifers, and you have a lot of diversity in in conifer cultivars. So we're we're looking at which ones are absorbing the most water over a certain time frame. So I haven't managed to. Um, uh, get this published yet but it's in the process so i won't necessarily go into all the results that we've found so far but basically we've gathered a whole three cultivars of uh, one species and then we have other species uh, growing next to them and we're basically watering them saturating the soil with water and then measuring simply by weighing them how much water is being absorbed on a week by week basis and seeing how one does better than the wow. other and then once we've got that data over you know gradual amounts of time you can see how they respond to you know either light levels or heat so for example one of our species is responding really strongly to to temperature so you think okay well in the future when we have gradual increases of of temperature um, this species is a good candidate because it will basically increase its water absorption with the amount of temperature going up and then yeah looking at the different traits that are differentiating them we're targeting stuff that's either relating to the total leaf surface. So for conifers, that's very difficult to, to quantify. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's quite easy for broad broad leaf species because you know, if you take a leaf and you put it flat, it's a two two dimensional structure. You can just scan it, and there's some really nice software out there where it's quite easy to just estimate the total leaf area for this one leaf, and then you just multiply it by the number of leaves on the plant. You can mm -hmm. actually, with hedges, you can actually physically count them. Wow. Oh, this hedge has 100 leaves, or you know, 150 leaves, whatever. But with conifers, it becomes so much more difficult because you're not really dealing with a two-dimensional structure anymore. You're dealing with a, a three-dimensional structure, and whether your leaves are built up of scales or needles, you know, that's also complicating the pattern here. So you have to kind of use some equations to factor that in and get your total leaf area. And we found that's a really good predictor for the amount of water that's being used, right? Like the total hmm. amount of leaf area that you have is going to allow you to have more photosynthesis, more evapotranspiration and replenish the soil for its capacity in holding water. Wow. And it's really cool to take that approach to understanding breeding. I mean, it's a whole new level of cultivars that that might not have been the goal, but then you do realize that plants are truly under the confines of what the physical environment is doing to them. And each change in sort of the physical appearance, whether it was motivated by aesthetics or whatever, is going to have an impact on how this species or how this organism operates and what it responds to in this world. And so one thing that's always amazed me is looking at how even just native cultivars influence the insect communities. But I never even really thought of branching out into like water holding capacity and mm -hmm. how it responds to stormwater or temperature changes and how different tweaks or different, um, you know, sort of breeding regimens or cultivation can change that in a big way, even within a single, you know, group of plants. Yeah, actually, actually, that's a, a good point you mentioned is on top of your selection of species or cultivars, then comes the addition of cultural practices. So, for example, with uh, fruit tree production, it's a, it's a really well-known thing that your rootstock that you graft on will strongly influence the production of your of your apples or you know whatever fruit you're growing. So, even then, you've chosen your species. It's also really important, maybe as horticulturalists, to choose the right graft that will be adapted to that area, and then you have like the cultural practices like, okay, if I trim my hedge in a certain way so that it produces more stems, does that affect also the its capacity 
even for the same genotype, you can have a variety of different reactions. And I would imagine sort of your results as this evolves and continues on as a science and you find more and more interesting ways to look at this and, and test different aspects of how do these plants perform in a human environment and what kind of ecosystem services they're providing, that then feeds back into the breeding programs where maybe not, you know, from a horticultural perspective, but from, you know, municipalities breeding plants to do things differently in different kind of human structures or environments or building plants that can handle drought and heat differently to put into sort of like raised beds on these vertical surfaces. I mean, mm. this this can really feed back into this process and help us start making better decisions that can make our urban areas greener overall and improve the human environment, but also help in mitigating some of the impacts the human environment has on the planet. Yeah, there's two aspects here. There's the first one is we are a, a charity dedicated to to gardeners in a sense. So we're interested in seeing what the potential is of, of garden plants in a garden setting, but also, as you mentioned, production of plants for, you know, the wider green spaces used as public parks, et cetera, by the, the local communities. And one aspect that I'm also interested in is trying to quantify the economic impact of gardens throughout the UK. There's, um, there's a nice report that was produced um, by Oxford Economics on the impact of UK horticulture. And so we, they've quantified that the broader industry has about £24 billion worth of impact wow. um, in the country. And so the next step is kind of, okay, so that's that's the broader industry, but um, you know, in terms of ecosystem services, what is the contribution of all of the gardeners in the UK? I don't know exactly know how many gardeners we have, but I think on the website, there's uh, over 30 million different IPs uh, logged in. So, you know, potentially reaching 30, diff 30 wow. million people and thinking, okay, if everybody has the capacity to increase their surface area, whether it's for uh, hedges, whether it's for different species to increase biodiversity, how much does that amount to in terms of, you know, our contribution to society and saying, yeah, we have really good reports on public spaces, on how much trees can influence the urban environment for areas that belong to the public, but how much are we contributing as gardeners to that? And I think that would be really interesting to, to see in the future. Yeah, I would imagine it's it's similar over there as it is here, is most of your land is tied up in private practices. And so mm. it really does emphasize this idea of people need to get involved in some way, whether that's a few plants on a balcony or on a front porch or, you know, using a good portion of your yard to generate biodiversity on the landscape and help give back to some things that are lost because the more concrete and asphalt and lawn that goes in, the less stable our ecosystem is going to be, which, you know, affects everything from our day-to-day -day lives all the way up to the health of this this planet we're living on. Yeah, and it's surprising how easily biodiversity can colonize areas. You know, yeah. this year we had no mow May, so where you don't mm -hmm. mow your lawn or anything for the whole nice. month of May. And people kept kept that going on, you know, throughout the summer. And the amount of pictures of orchids that I received, like, oh, wow. this appeared in my lawn. It's like, yep, that's an orchid. That's what they do. <laughs> they are actually good colonizers of disturbed habitats. Yeah, that's and remarkable. Yeah, it's just they, they appear and, you know, you start to get this really rapid colonization just from letting nature do its own thing. Yeah, and... 
to reiterate this idea, you know, there's I, I know a lot of people who are whole on 100% dedicated to the native plant movement, and I support them more than I support most other things. But you have to realize that society is a broad brushstroke, and horticulture is such a great sort of stepping stone for a lot of people because, you know, they might not understand the concept of native plants or why ecosystems need native plant communities. But a lot of people, most people I meet can appreciate a nice garden or at least enjoy gardening on some level. They might not do it in a big way, but these are all really important stepping stones and hooks to get people sort of involved in the process, start paying attention to these. And just, you know, just what you just said there, a simple fact of like, I'm not going to mow this month has introduced people to, wow, I didn't know native orchids exist. I would assume a lot of people do not even realize there are native orchids because I, I have that all the time. They're like, whoa, we have orchids here in North America? You're like, yeah, it's not just yeah. these you know tropical species that you see in the grocery stores. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's surprising what, what we have you know for, for people to just have a little bit of greenery in, in their backyard or in their front gardens. One of my colleagues who who studies uh, well-being in particular was looking at the amount of cortisol that your body produces and finding that just by having a few plant pots in the entrance of your driveway or something just dramatically decreased uh, your stress levels. Wow. So, yeah, we have uh, actually, I should mention this, but in our garden at Wisley, we have a brand new uh, science building that's just been opened. And so... On either side of this building, it's like a triangular shaped where we have different gardens and the the very front piece of it is dedicated to well-being. <laughs> so we're going to be using it to test like how people react to different colors, to different sensations. You have like water flowing. And I think, yeah, well-being definitely is, is one of those uh, areas that we're definitely interested in in looking at more. Yeah, I would love to see a sort of a trait-based approach to human well-being, you know, like, seriously, though, like, what traits do people cue in on? I think it would be fascinating just to see the diversity of just interest in what really does attract people to plants, because I've got friends that do foliage plants, I got friends that do sort of the sensory smells, Um, you know, there's plenty of people that just like pretty flowers, and that's cool, too. So it'd be really neat to see how that all ties into the perspectives. and, And again, just getting people interested and hooked and hopefully growing plants in their own neighborhood. But then from there, that breeds the awareness that can feed into the community and and making better decisions for your neighborhood or even the the geopolitical area where your votes count. Absolutely. And just getting also that that sense of community, you know, I know, for example, hedges have been historically a source of uh, dispute between neighbors. Uh, So that's maybe one aspect to consider. But, you know, it's amazing what you can talk about with people just by asking them, oh, you know, what's this growing on in your garden? Or, wow, that looks amazing. I've never seen this before. And just one conversation leads to the next. And I would, I remember one particular situation where I was hitchhiking in, in France to get to work uh, on the weekend. And uh, I was walking in this village and this little log guy was just gardening away in his front garden, cultivating loads of vegetables. And I was, I was looking for the nearest area where I could get a car from and just asked him. He, he really wasn't bothered in replying to me. He was just like, oh, get out of my way. And then immediately I just said to him, oh, you have some really cool plants growing there. And oh my, what box did I open? <laughs> he was so happy. I told him I used to work for the Botanic Garden and he just proceeded to take me, you know, in his car and gave me food wow. and like took me the whole way to work, which was, you know, several hundreds of kilometers away, which were, was just amazing. 
That's fantastic. I love plants bringing people together and you never know what's going to unlock a a new friendship or just connection you can make to someone you otherwise would not give you there at the time of day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You never know what's going to happen. Uh, that's fantastic. Well, Matthew, this has been really fascinating. And, and again, I think really kind of unlocking a, a door into a world that a lot of people even interested in horticulture don't know exists. But if people want to find out more about your work, the work of your team and the RHS in general, where do you recommend they go uh, investigating some of this stuff? Well, I think the first point of contact would just be to go on the RHS website. That's uh, www.rhs.org. We have a lot of material there for for people to look at, um, detailing our gardens, going into deeper explanations on what it is that we do. My, I've got a Twitter account uh, that's uh, at mysotis underscore Matt. So yeah, awesome. You like uh, the forget me nots? Yeah, they're actually um, my favorite group of all time. I'm a I'm a borage nutter. Oh, nice. <laughs> so that was one of my favorite families of interest, the the borage family. That's and, cool. Uh, my sotus in particular. Yeah, I don't, you know, that's unique. I don't meet a lot of people that are like borage is first and for, I mean, people like borage, but like that's a, an amazing family of plants. So maybe we'll have to get you back on to talk about them. Yeah, for sure. It's quite niche, but uh, there's a really nice community and some good science going on on that group. So yeah. I like niche, out. man. That is my, that's my realm. So yeah, let's, uh, let's make that happen. Sweet. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us. This has been really great. And, uh, you know, hang in there, stay healthy and happy growing. Cheers. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Matt. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Yeah. uh, I'll catch you another time. Great. Cheers. Cheers. All right. Really interesting stuff. I'm glad you are all able to hear about horticultural taxonomy and all of the efforts involved and what it can do for us directly from a botanist working on it himself. I thank Matthew for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And of course, all of the relevant links are in the show notes for this episode over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. That's where you're going to find pretty much all the links for every episode that I put out. If you're enjoying the show and you want to ensure that it has a future, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. It helps keep this show up and running. And speaking of patron support, I have a shout out to the latest producers on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Christine and Christina. Both of them signed up at the producer credit level. So not only do they get this wonderful resume building title of podcast producer, they're also getting everything we have available over there, including access to multiple mini bonus episodes each and every month. So thank you again to them and every one of my patrons that makes this show possible each week. I couldn't be doing it without them. Of course, I still have books for sale. In Defense of Plants and Exploration into the Wonder of Plants. It's available wherever books are sold. And you can also pick up a ton of merch. Just check the show notes. All the links are over on the website, indefensiveplants.com. But yeah, otherwise, make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in because as usual, there are so many great conversations just over the horizon. But until next time, I hope you get outside, stay healthy, and be good to each other. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.